Neuromodulation is a science of modulating nerves for therapeutic benefit. It has strong roots in neurology and neurosurgery. As a result, it is not surprising that the bulk of today's revenue generators are spinal cord stimulation devices and deep brain stimulation devices. Both of these technological innovations evolved incrementally from pacemakers through technological innovation led by engineers. As a result, it appears to me that people always run around with a hammer, the technological solution, looking for a nail, the biological problem. Today on Scraps, we are lucky to have Dr. Howard Levin. Howard and his friend Mark Gelfand have silently, yet surely, led the area of modulating nerves in cardiology and also led the field of neuromodulation into disease indications beyond the traditional neurological disorders. They have taken a biology-focused innovation approach and in line with my thinking, and sometimes I evangelize about it by saying that the biggest opportunity for the future lies outside the brain and spinal cord and not in it. That's not to say that things cannot be improved in these areas, but one does not open up new markets by modulating nerve structures in the brain and spinal cord. The two of them, Howard and Mark, have founded some of the significant companies that explore the role of nerves in modulating cardiorenal and cardiorespiratory disorders. They first founded Ardian, the renal renovation company, along with Foundry, the West Coast incubator. Respicardia sought to develop treatment for central sleep apnea. It was the first device for this purpose. CBM was the next company that was founded out of Coridia, and that company looked at carotid body modulation. And now more recently, they started Axon Therapies to develop treatments, a device-based treatment for a massively unmet heart failure population. I got to know them when they were setting up Axon Therapies, and it was wonderful insight into how they work. Recently, they joined forces with Deerfield Management, who was an investor in their Axon Therapies company to start a medtech incubator called Deerfield Catalyst. It is a pleasure to welcome Howard to the show. First of all, congratulations on this amazing news. Well, uh, thank you very much, Arun, and uh, you know, really appreciate the opportunity to uh, be part of your podcast. You know, as as you were saying, we were uh, lucky to uh, be working with uh, uh, now Deerfield Cat uh, Deerfield Management to be able to make a. Uh, joint venture between Deerfield Management and Coridia to start a company called Deerfield Catalyst. Um, previously, Deerfield Management had started a West Coast incubator called NXT Biomedical. Dan Rose leading it, uh, who's a you know a giant yeah. in the yeah. field, having done PBT and everything else. Uh, and so we've been lucky to start an East Coast uh, incubator called you for that's fantastic and and stan when he kind of came on our podcast he kind of shared 
with us briefly about uh, how the deal was structured and what he was planning to do in terms of the cardiac valve innovation and potentially his goal to spin out kind of five different companies or five companies in the next few years from the incubator that he's running uh, with a commitment to for, for $250 million of which a large proportion or a, is set aside for future investments, but most of it is for, or a small proportion is for early stage investments in terms of operating costs, et cetera. So can you share with us anything with respect to the deal terms, et cetera, Howard? Sure. We have a very similar overall approach. Uh, you know, numbers are slightly different, but they're all basically the same concept. We have an operating budget on which we uh, run it and do some internal uh, evaluation. And then once we find things that uh, are look like they could become Series A candidates, if you were able to answer a few more questions, basically a seed phase, uh, then we can get additional money uh, for different seed projects, which we then evaluate them to get to, and that justifies Series A. The benefit of that is that um, it provides better vetted deal flow for Deerfield, uh, who's a, you know will be the early investor, uh, but it also provides everybody, including ourselves, with a better opportunity to have a, a better chance at a win. Uh, because, you know, you, you can now take out the earlier, uh, the issues earlier and take out a lot of the risk earlier uh, than you normally would be able to. Yeah, that's fantastic. So one of the follow-up questions that kind of comes to my mind really is how is this model of, of innovation that you, that you will be working on uh, over the next few years now with Deerfield, uh, through the Deerfield Catalyst, different from the the previous models of of setting up companies through Coridia work, like for example, I think I kind of quoted Ardian, Respicaria, CBM, and Axon, and and I was kind of involved during the setup of Axon, uh-huh. as you as you right. know. Uh, um, and so, can you just walk us through how this is slightly different? Uh, because I think there is a reason why you probably opted for this particular model compared to the traditional VC funding model, which has worked incredibly well. For you in the past as well so it's not as if you've moved from a model that did not work for you you've actually been extremely successful in that arena but what what kind of prompted the discussions around around setting up this type of model you know, on average it's a uh time savings for us in in a significant way let me explain why um it's you know even though we're pitching to one vc essentially deerfield management uh you know, and there's still, you got to prove that it's a real project that, you know, like, just like any other project, uh, it has to um, meet the criteria for uh, VC investment. The difference is, is that you save a lot of time. And uh, there are two types of time. One type of time is the uh, time it takes you to convince any individual VC to invest. So, you know, you, every VC is slightly different. They have slight different needs because their funds are at different places or, you know, they've got portfolio management that they want to do and be able to have more in one area or another area or whatever. But second, more important for us is that 
without this, I'd spend 50% of my time raising money. Uh, and this now allows me to go to 10% of my time raising money, you know, which is a time where we're pitching. And I can spend a significant amount more time actually working on things. That's the real difference. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I think that is something where working on things is where you guys, you folks have been incredibly productive. So just to give a flavor uh, to our audience on the various technologies that you've actually developed, can we actually go back to the mm -hmm. very beginning? And I know this is a story that you and Mark have said it mm -hmm. many times, uh, but I think it'll be fantastic to kind of really understand how the, the professional marriage between you and Mark kind of came to be, et cetera. Can you just tell us about those early days? Back sure. Up in, and then we'll go from there into, into your setting up of your first company, RDN and, and others. So I'm old. Uh, that's the first thing. And uh, <laughs> what that meant, what that means is that uh, in the late eighties, uh, I was a fellow at Johns Hopkins in cardiology, and Mark was a uh, engineer in the lab, and we shared a desk. Uh, I want to call it, it's actually a, a lab bench. We call it a desk because it sounds better to call it a desk, and then said we were given a lab bench to sit at. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we worked on a lot of academic projects that it was really great. We enjoyed working together a lot. And... Um, found that we both had entrepreneurial sort of interests. Uh, so uh, after I left Hopkins, I went to Columbia and clinically I was a heart failure cardiologist, was running the um, mechanical cardiac uh, support service. Um, and Mark actually then went out uh, after a couple more years, he went out, left Hopkins in their first spin-out, the first spin-out that Hopkins did uh, in uh, a company called Cardiologic. And that the yeah. device uh, now is sold by Zoll as the Autopulse. Um, he then, you know, spent some time doing that, went to uh, Mallinckrodt, Pierin and Bennett, did some time in a strategic for a year or so. Yeah. Uh, and, and then in um, 1999, we got back together again uh, to start a company called CHF Solutions. And CHF Solutions um, was a device to treat uh, heart failure, which was sort of, you know, our area of interest and expertise, um, and uh, got sold to Gambro. Uh, we moved on. Uh, right before the sale, um, to start Ardian. Uh, and uh, we were able to do, you know, preclinical work and some very early clinical work uh, before the foundry took it over and uh, ran with it and did an amazing job. Uh, and the, the whole Ardian team did an amazing job to get it uh, through approval. Uh, so um, after Ardian, uh, when we left Ardian, um, we uh, founded a company called Respicardia, which is um, about to be, hopefully, in the next reasonable amount of time, uh, acquired. Uh, it, 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 I think it met its, hopefully met its three-year sales goals. Mm, um, fantastic. Yes, yeah, so hopefully... That will be true. Um, 
And we also did uh, a number of other companies, uh, Sibium, Renal Guard, uh, Reprieve, um, and one you're very familiar with having been involved with it, which was uh, Axon yeah. uh, through APVC and uh, GSK being the early um, investors. So, you know, we've sold a bunch of patents along the way and for other companies, et cetera. Yeah. So it that it's been a lot of fun. We've really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, certainly um, we've had a lot of help from different people that we've worked with, uh, and uh, that's how we got here. Yeah, that's fantastic. So can I just pick a couple of a few examples here, and you can probably sure. just walk me through the rationale because I think a lot of our audience is all predominantly. Uh, in the neuromodulation and 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 med tech world, um, so I think they will they will really appreciate and and also a lot of academia uh, as well. So if we just pick out the first example uh, right after CHF Solutions, which mm -hmm. was Ardian, which mm -hmm. is a is a very funky way of saying renal denovation, which is R D N, literally the three letters of the mm -hmm. alphabet. Um, and so. And that is something that you partner with Foundry to be able to do mm -hmm. that early stage ideation, et cetera. And this is this dates back to your working model at Coridia as well. It's like as soon as you have an idea, you figure out a way to partner with smart investors who understand what this is and then ultimately are willing to take the project forward who still understand your kind of long-term ambitions in terms of moving on to other projects but are willing to kind of establish teams and take the project forward, mm -hmm. et cetera. So, Talk to us a bit about the idea for why renal renovation would be extremely important at the time. Did you start off with hypertension or did you straight away think about heart failure, et cetera? Because I think that also had a bit of a knock-on effect from what I understand in terms of the strategy some of your competitors took as well. Because knowing that you were a bit ahead in hypertension at this stage, I think CVRX basically decided to focus on a different indication. Uh, so do you just want to tell us a bit about that as well in terms of uh, what sure. renal denervation does? So renal denervation um, came out of the the idea that we were uh, trying to find a um, better way to remove volume from patients. Uh, and uh, in order to do that, you have to make the kidney believe that there's um, a reason for it not to retain salt and water and not to release neurohormones that cause problems. Uh, so it turns out that the same approach could have treated um, hypertension, heart failure, and chronic renal failure. Uh, the, originally, we went after the heart failure approach and uh, did uh, a handful of patients with a uh, percutaneous uh, approach to block the renal nerves, um, on, actually under CT guidance. Uh, and then when the foundry took it over and got into humans with, the, with their device, the initial idea was basically more or less still heart failure, but uh, start with people that higher, had higher blood pressures because we knew a p potential side effect of it was that you could drop blood pressure. 
Uh, and then they saw a significant reduction in blood pressure retargeted towards hypertension and the rest is history. Uh, so that's that's actually how it got there. Now, that's my memory being old and decrepit. Uh, it may not be exactly correct. You can ask Hanson and Mark Deem and Andrew and, you know, those guys, they can tell you better. But Yeah. No, it's it's fantastic, and I think the fact that you you folks were able to able to understand a critical problem, which leads to fluid accumulation and end stage heart failure, um, and then ultimately understand that that is the way in which most of the ACE inhibitors work uh, mm-hmm. as a mechanism, or even the opposite is true in terms of worsening of disease. And then you were t- trying to target the real the real nerves that would ultimately lead to kind of tricking the kidney into believing that everything is okay and therefore it would release all the salt and water out would be a was a great way. And I think you sold a company to Medtronic for a quite a sizable amount. And I think they kind of botched up the <laughs> pivotal trials a bit in terms of patient selection, but it looks like it's actually making um, a renaissance again in terms of, of some of the trials being run and also I did attend that recent seminar mm-hmm. that you had uh, with the DCHF group where there was some new evidence that was being presented in AF and uh, looking at renal innovation and atrial fibrillation, et cetera, which is fantastic to see that that's actually still running uh, mm-hmm. within within uh, Medtronic at this point of time. So from there, you actually moved into a very different kind of not necessarily heart failure, but looking at a very important complication of heart failure, end-stage mm-hmm. heart failure, which is central sleep apnea uh, with your respicardia uh, system. And I know there were a lot of other companies that you that you mentioned sure. at the beginning, but let's actually take respicardia because what really excites me about respicardia is, again, the news that you said, but also more importantly, from a scientific point of view, the manner in which you were addressing that very critical part uh, of a, a cardiorespiratory issue that actually happens in end-stage heart failure. So tell us a bit more about what the issue is and what did respicardia do uh, to overcome So respicardia um, was founded to look at, as you said, central sleep apnea, which is different than obstructive sleep apnea. It, they're actually on a continuum, uh, but uh, central sleep apnea is due to a, most people believe, an imbalance between um, cardiac output uh, and the time due to that cardiac output that the change in the blood gas is expected to be seen um, by the sensors in your brain and uh, peripherally, um, and that adjusts your breathing rate and your breathing pattern. So um, to make a long story short, uh, what we tried to do was to um, adjust the breathing pattern uh, in such a way. Originally, we tried to, we were trying to take over the breathing pattern, and uh, give credit to Mark Gelfan. Um, he as he's trained as a control system engineer, and he looked at this as control system, and uh, he realized that. Um, we don't have to take over. What we can do is, again, entrain or fake the uh, the brain into believing it should uh, breathe in this pattern rather than that pattern, than this abnormal pattern. 
and uh, was able to uh, have mark reductions in um, in the uh, central sleep apnea apnea hypopnea index, uh, which now uh, looking at the longer term data that's coming out about heart failure looks like it has a significant benefit in uh, improving the heart failure state. So um, you know that's that's actually nice to see that uh, it's not just a respiratory change, but that the uh, hope for a change in heart failure actually occurred. Um, also, you know. None of these things, what, no matter what project it is, uh, I've never seen, maybe there are people, but I've never seen where the first assumption you make for a particular physiology or approach to a therapy uh, turns out to be 100% correct. And, um, you know, Mark spent a lot of nights uh, in, uh, in, you know, sleep doing sleep studies uh, with different stimulation patterns and stuff like that to find out the right way to do it. So, uh, you know, that was a ton of work. No, and again, I think I was, when I kind of came to know about respicardia around the time that you were, you were doing your clinical studies at the time, I mean, I was, I always grew up in my cardiology and cardiac surgical training knowing about kind of chain strokes breathing and what happens in end-stage heart failure with respect to activation uh -huh. of the central chemoreceptors and in the brain that leads to a buildup of CO2 because his heart is not able to pump enough blood and that leads to a depression of breathing and therefore patients will actually stop breathing and then uh -huh. they would sometimes they would come up and sometimes they would just end up uh -huh. into into arrest etc so the fact that we are you're able to kind of provide uh, a big reason to stay ventilated because of the stimulation uh, of of the diaphragmatic or the phrenic nerve uh, to uh, again via percutaneous method. I think I think the device solution here is extremely novel and super innovative. I think the way you folks actually figured out a way to get to the phrenic nerve and being able to stimulate that yeah. is is fantastic. I mean, I think I think which is why I say it's it's a true source of inspiration in terms of uh -huh. how you folks have thought and and I think. You folks are almost one of the first ones, although the, the influence of autonomic nerves, et cetera, has been described in the past in cardiology for many, many years. I mean, this dates back decades, right? But I think apart from the cardiac pacemakers, I think you folks have demonstrated the value of modulating nerves to treat cardiovascular disorders with some of your portfolio companies, which I think is, is incredible because that actually led to a change in the view of how for an industry and interventionalists who are very much focused towards pacemakers oh. and defibrillators and ICD devices to moving them on to kind of neuromodulation and, and bioelectronic medicine. I think your, your work, uh, the two of you, between you and Mark has been such, such an uh, inspiration for, for people like myself, to be honest. So from there, moving on uh -huh. to CBM, which again, Mm -hmm. looks at chemoreceptors, but this time you actually were not looking at hypertension. You were not looking at end-stage heart failure, as was the case with Ardian and with, with Respicardia. You actually had a very significant hypothesis to look at heart failure or a very specific mm -hmm. hypothesis to look at heart failure. So tell us a bit more about CBM, because I followed a lot of those clinical studies in my early days of, of, of my industrial mm -hmm. kind of work or experience. 
uh, about how you kind of went about uh, the hypothesis and testing that in the clinic. Sure. So, well, you know, uh, Sibium was um, an interesting thing in, in the sense that um, there was uh, obstructive sleep apnea, interestingly. Uh, okay, let's take a step back. The sympathetic hyperactivity is the cornerstone of the problems with heart failure, many other disease states, but especially in heart failure. And all of the treatments or the majority of the pharmacological treatments are aimed towards um, dealing with the complications or sequelae of that autonomic hyperactivity. Uh, one of the, we found one of the roots of hyperactivity uh, was a something called the carotid body. Now, most people think when you hear carotid body, they actually think carotid sinus, which is, again is actually roughly in the same place in the neck, uh, and but is a that's a mechanoreceptor that measures uh, stretch or blood pressure, where um, the carotid body is like a grain of rice size. Um, structure uh, between the two carotids uh, that is a chemosensor and can sense uh, oxygenation levels, CO2, um, can sense blood flow to some degree, which is why it has some activation in heart failure, etc. But uh, low flow in heart failure, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea, all activate the carotid body. When you activate the carotid body, it causes uh, an increase in sympathetic hyperactivity. So we said, okay, well, that's bad. Let's try and get rid of it. And that's uh, how we came up with the idea for carotid body modulation, CBM. Yeah, which is, again, another interesting wordplay on, on the three letters of the alphabet that you picked out, right? Uh, just like Ardian. Um, so in the case of CBM, you had the clinical study that was done with, in, if I remember correctly, in Poland with, uh, with, with, with Peter Ponikowski. And then Correct. I saw, I think I saw one review. So what happened to CBM? I mean, I think you did publish the clinical study that was done in those patients, right. correct? And and then what happened to the company, Howard? So what happened was uh, the heart failure stuff it was being done in half ref, and we did like 10 patients. But uh, similarly, yeah. they found that there was a reduction in blood pressure, and the board decided to go after hypertension as a different, essentially as a competitor to uh the mechanisms it's a different mechanism a different target than uh than Ardian. Uh, and when simplicity three came in uh, or didn't come in uh there was uh funding issues for everybody in that hypertension and i guess uh the company could have pivoted towards heart failure maybe a little earlier maybe not who knows but uh in the end it went on hold yeah, which I think it still has utility in heart failure, right? Based on some of the data that was published. Uh, you might want to revisit and restart at some point. There, there, there's something for you to do yeah, in your spare time. You can do that. Yeah, 
I I I think you folks have definitely left left that space for me to do. I, I, we'll 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 definitely look that up and and we can catch up offline if uh, about that. Then finally, I think the one that is super cool in in my opinion, but also rather than focusing on the traditional heart failure, which is the HEFREF or heart failure with reserve reduced ejection fraction, you folks decided to go with a completely different type of heart failure patients oh. with axon therapies. And I think, especially, in, uh, I just want to point out this, and I think this is probably where, while HEFPEF, which is preserved ejection fraction, heart failure preserved ejection fraction, has been there and known more, I think it has received more attention in the, la- in the, in the last year or so, just because of the COVID sequelae, because I think some of the college athletes who actually tested COVID positive, I think 15% of them end up having a large-scale diastolic dysfunction, if I remember correctly. A lot of it started at OSU, which is my alma mater. Uh, I'm, I'm an alumni of, and I think it kind of has spread, and it has been confirmed that at a few other uh, college athletes from other universities as well. So it's definitely very timely, and it looks like that company is doing fantastically well. We had Juan Pablo on the podcast a few last year, and he kind of explained we kind of gave him a hard time at that time, just so that, just like oh. the way he give puts you folks through the paces. He and Imran do. I think we there kind we of go. put him to Thank paces you, here, just to talk him through we all of the other that. companies. Yeah, I think we, I, I, <laughs> I know, I know you will. So tell us a bit more about uh, axon therapies, because I think the way you went about testing the hypothesis here as well, I think I think it's very important for for young innovators to actually right. know which i think is the really point of the podcast so tell us a bit about the hypothesis and then how you went about de-risking that idea to then developing your own proprietary device system for uh, with which you're you're just starting your clinical trials if i'm correct or maybe mm-hmm. i have that wrong no, but, you're, you're correct. Uh, in terms of maybe you've already started or mm-hmm. or maybe um so yeah do you just want to tell us a bit more about that how it Sure. And, uh, you know, everybody does things their own way. This is the way we do it. But, uh, you know, it, it's worked for us and, and hopefully it'll work for some of your uh, your listeners. You know, the you could tell we have a physiological bent towards our, the things we try and work on. And, uh, again, this was uh, part of that. And in, originally when Axon was uh, started, it was started as – uh, funding from APVC, GSK, as part of the uh, bioelectronic uh, medicine initiative, where looking for electroceuticals or a way to uh, use the patterns of uh, nerve activation in order to treat disease. Uh, one of the things we looked at was uh, that there was a specific nerve called the greater splanchnic nerve, which controlled the uh, splanchnic or the organs of the uh, abdominal organs, the vasculature of the abdominal organs. Um, and uh, then uh, specifically uh, the venous, venodilation, and found that uh, we could treat syncope or fainting by trying to activate that nerve and move more blood uh, out of the splanchnic bed into the central veins, which would increase cardiac output then prevent people from fainting. Uh, it's actually a um, normal mechanism that the body has uh, in order to respond to hemorrhage or other things where uh, the body needs a lot of blood quickly. Uh, But we found that 
um, blocking that nerve allowed you to cause venodilation or pool more blood at a lower pressure. And that obviously is uh, sort of one of the goals of treatment of, of heart failure. Uh, so we said, okay, uh, let's let's look at this in terms of heart failure. Well, we the, separately from us, Dan Burkhoff and others uh, looked and found that um, there seemed to be a maldistribution, inappropriate redistribution of blood uh, at rest and with exercise in patients, both with HFREF and HFPEF, but more more so in HFPEF, um, and that uh, it. You know, we hypothesize that that may occur due to excess sympathetic or hyperactivity, which is carried to the splanchnic bed on that particular nerve, and that ablation of it would work. So we said, okay, well, how are we going to do it? And again, this is uh, one of the things that approaches we take. There's no reason to spend, raise a lot of money and spend a lot of money on building the perfect device if you don't know if it works physiologically or clinically. So we found a surgical approach. Uh, to ablate that nerve uh, in patients with HFPEF. Um, and we chose HFPEF because there are zero therapies out there, essentially, uh, approved therapies for HFPEF, uh, where there are many, many for HFREF. So both from the commercial and clinical point of view, it made sense to go after HFREF, uh, since HFREF is at least 50% of heart failure and maybe more now. Um, so we then said, okay, and did a surgical study, followed patients up for a year, found that they had marked improvements in physiological and clinical outcomes, then raised the money uh, to develop an endovascular approach, did a lot of work to understand what the right approach would be, built a device, uh, did uh, first in human with the endovascular approach in 11 patients. And now uh, have an IDE in the U.S. where we are just enrolled our first patient uh, about a month ago. Yeah, uh, and, I th and I think that, that again is fantastic because I had known just around the time that you folks had were just in discussions or we were all discussing at the time about the creation of Axon. Uh, I also knew that there was a previous company which had called Leptos Biomedico, which had actually stimulated the greatest plastic nerve for treatment of obesity because they wanted to regulate gut hormones, etc. And one of the side effects when they actually tried to do that, from what I understand, was that they, uh, they saw an increase in, in blood pressure when they stimulated the, the greatest plastic nerve because it basically causes all of the constriction of the blood vessels in the gut and therefore it was emptying into in, in uh, it was emptying into the inferior vena cava. Pretty much the same hypothesis that you described for syncope, where you just want to redistribute the amount of blood back to the heart so that the brain gets supply and, and you would treat syncope. So that is again, I think, because I knew that because the chief scientific officer of Leptos at the time had just moved to GSK and mm -hmm. and, a, and a year a year before we we started interacting around Axon, I had a conversation with him and he kind of described this and which is when i think this opportunity kind of came about i think it it the opposite mm -hmm. almost seemed like the right way to approach it uh but syncope again is a great indication i think it just speaks to the percentage of people who have hefpef versus syncope and i think as as innovators i know and i know right. that 
we're, we're we're not giving we're not giving up on sync. Uh, I I know, and it's, and it's a very important we'll one, and 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 it's, and it's also something yeah. that I believe is is important to me personally as well because I think my father passed away because of syncope. I believe because of aortic stenosis. No, so therefore, uh, yeah. So it's it's definitely kind of important, uh, and and I think there is something that's that's there, and I also do know a few people who actually suffer from. From POTS and and have esophageal syncope as well mm-hmm. as a result of that. So no, that, yeah. that's that's definitely something that's worth pursuing, and hopefully you'll pursue that as part of the DF catalyst here uh, and many more to come. That's mm-hmm. fantastic, Howard. I think so. With all of these, I think are you going to be? There is always a flavor to kind of heart failure and cardiology to the work here. So through DF catalyst, are you going to be focusing again? on your core expertise of your experience, et cetera, in, in this area, or are you also planning to kind of venture out into other therapy areas as well? My guess is it's gonna remain cardiovascular, respiratory, renal, sort okay. of as a overall focus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, uh, that's where we know things and, uh, I probably wouldn't be no good at ophthalmology. <laughs> but so. at the same time, I think... I, I, right? No, that's not true. I can guarantee you I will be no good at ophthalmology. <laughs> you folks are, are masters at applying the knowledge and effectively converting that into products that will help patients. So thank you so much for doing this, Howard. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, this has been this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate the opportunity. And... and uh, you know, if you ever give up your day job, we're always looking for people. So please don't hesitate. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Thanks for listening. Please share the love by sharing the stories you heard. But more importantly, spreading the word about where you heard this information and recommending that your friends and family listen to this podcast. All interviews and soundtracks you heard belong to Scraps, a brand jointly owned by Jojo Platt and Arun Sridhar. Our soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dan, and you can find their collections on all the music apps. Remember to share this podcast. It's Scraps with a K and Sparks spelled backwards. Okay.